If you're not familiar with the Inklings, I would encourage you to, to kind of Google them because they were a group of guys that would get together, sometimes with a pint in hand or sometimes with a pipe in hand, and they would talk about things related to faith and the story of faith that we're a part of from that group uh, where it was created some of the greatest um, pieces of literature in the English language ever written, including Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia and Lord of the Rings. This group would discuss things along these lines that were profound. And it's stories like these, like Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and others like that, that invite us into what C.S. Lewis called the true myth. This thing called the true myth. The, the Christian story is the underlying story behind all stories and myths. That's the point of this phrase, true myth. The only difference between all the other stories and all the other myths is that the Christian story is a true story. See, the gospel is a story of wonder. And, it, and it's the story of Jesus and how he's come to rescue us, how he's come to liberate and set free and redeem this world. See, we are all so aware that there's something good that we are created for, and we ache for it. We are all aware that something is broken, and oftentimes we weep over that. We are also aware that there's, there's something that needs to be fixed. We yearn for even something outside of this world to come and rescue us. See, we're all so hopeful that someone will right every wrong. And our, our hearts are, are stirred by this idea of what's called, again, C.S. Lewis's phrase, the true myth. It is, a, see, it is a fictional story that reminds us of the true myth. It's that there really is a beauty who kisses the beast. There really is a Hercules who defeats the villain. There really is a hero. There really is Jesus. Jesus is the true myth. So if Jesus is the true myth that C.S. Lewis talked about in that inkling group, he's fully God, fully man. If he really is a rescuer, then faith becomes our lifeline as we navigate through the difficulties, the throes, the easy and difficult parts of life. See, faith guides us to trust and hope in this thing called the true myth. Faith, not just an intellectual ascent into an idea. It's not what I'm saying, but faith that leads us to allegiance. Faith that leads our hearts to a level of submission, a level of trust, a level that changes and, and causes our hearts to surrender. That faith is what Jesus invites us into faith. So this morning, through the text in the end of John 4 and into chapter 5, Jesus is going to invite us into this kind of faith. Not just an intellectual ascent, but a deep believing and surrender to him that we find. So we're in a series, and a teaching series on um, the Gospel of John, and we're in a, a mini-series that we're ending today, and we'll start a new one next week. And the one that we're finishing today is, is called Come and See. And from John 1 to John 5, we've, we've seen these different individuals encounter Jesus. They've come and seen, or Jesus has, has come to them, and they've experienced and seen this rescuer. And we're going to continue that this morning. There's two stories we're going to see this morning at the end of John 5 and John, John end of John 4 and John 5. We're going to see some, some healings, and we're going to see the authority of Jesus. And it's all around this subject of faith. And so in John... Chapter 4, we're going to finish up this chapter here, starting in verse 46. It says this. So he 
came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was a, an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday about at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let me pray for us. Father, as we enter into the text this morning, I ask that your spirit would illuminate our hearts. And as we carry all manners of um, the realities of life, I pray that you would lift our eyes to remember the true myth, to remember the true story that we're a part of. Lord, I pray that you would Empower us with the gift of faith this morning to see afresh who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So we got this hidden gem within the end of John 4. And within this hidden gem is what John coins the second of several signs. There's a sign that takes place at the very end of this chapter. And John uses signs in his gospel throughout to share about Jesus and to share about the kingdom of Jesus. They refer to and they point to, they are a sign referencing his kingdom. And so each sign we ought to pause and, and look at it and say, what is Jesus communicating to us in this moment. And so we see the story play out. Jesus goes back to Cana. Cana is where that feast occurred, where that wedding took place, where he took those pots of water after the wine had ran out and they were turned into wine to be our first sign that we saw. And here there was an official whose son was ill. This was a, a royal official. He was one with authority. He was a, uh, some would say he was related to the military. He had authority. He had rank. He understood power. He understood those dynamics. And his son was very sick. The text goes on to say he was sick to the point of death. And when he caught word that Jesus was local, he went to him and asked him, will you come to my son? My son is to the point of death. He's sick. Will you come to him? I need you. I want you to come to him. There's two things playing out here. First, this, this dude was desperate. I don't know if you've been in a desperate place before like this man was, but as a parent, we were never designed to see our children experience significant pain. We were never designed to uh, see our children deal with sorrowful sickness. We were never designed to bury a child. It's not the design. When my wife and I had to bury, uh, after 20 weeks, my wife miscarried, and we had to bury the little body of our son Theo. I remember 
just processing all of that, knowing this was never the design for a parent to have to bury their child. So this father was desperate, his son to the point of death. So he was desperate, but he was also well aware that Jesus was one who had great authority. He had heard stories about this one Jesus. So he approached him requesting for Jesus to come to heal his son. He probably couldn't articulate the depth for sure, the depth of authority that Jesus had, but he knew he was one who had authority. He knew he was one who had authority, for he himself was a royal official who had authority. And so Jesus responds after the official comes to, um, the official comes to Jesus, and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official says, no, I, I believe you have authority, and I know you are unique, and I know you have the power to do it. And they have this dialogue, this back and forth together. He, he didn't want to be entertained. The official didn't. Many people did. He didn't want to be entertained by just another sign. He believed, he deeply believed in the power of Jesus. So Jesus has this simple phrase. There's a simple phrase in John 4, at the end of John 4, and there's a simple phrase in John 5 we're going to read in just a minute. And in this John 4 passage, there's these five words that he says, go, your son will live. He says these five brief little words. And the man believed. The man believed. He left. He didn't see the results. He's clueless on the outcome. He had confidence, however, that Jesus had done something. And he believed. He trusted. He was filled with faith in the ability of Jesus. So he went on his way. And again, this simple faith, this simple trust, this simple hope in Jesus and in his authority. Not knowing the outcome, but knowing the authority of Jesus. So some time passes, the story fast forwards, and John continues again, a narrative taking place, and the day has now gone on, and, and the royal official, after heading home, meets his servant on the road. They meet each other, and they have this brief dialogue. The servant says, your son's recovering, and the official immediately responds. Again, simple faith. He says, at what hour did he start recovering? And uh, the servant said, at the seventh hour, which would be around one in the afternoon. And the father knew that it was at that very hour. It was at that moment when Jesus said those words, at the very same moment that his son began to recover. And then the story's over. Second sign, end of scene. The story's finished. So it's short and sweet, but it's profound. What is this sign reminding us of? What is, why is this a sign that John is wanting us to see and reflecting and pointing to the kingdom of Jesus? What is this sign pointing to? See, it's this, the essential nature of faith. Faith in the kingdom of Jesus. See, there's something about faith that is so profound. It transcends us. And because it transcends us, it's something we cannot control. The invitation of faith that John is offering is not a general belief, but a deep abiding allegiance to Jesus Christ. The goal is faith. It's belief in Jesus. So you can't control when you have faith. Faith is, is, is not something that you can control. It's not something you can connive to work out your own vision for your life. Faith 
is not about circumstances. Faith is about trusting in the object, which is Jesus himself. Faith is trusting in Jesus, the one who was, the one who is, the one who will be forevermore. So following Jesus is is founded upon a journey of faith. And this sign is reminding us of that. It's not founded on the expectations of what he should do, but it's founded upon him, trusting in his leadership, submitting to his ways that are greater than our own. Like this man, we can't control Jesus, but we can trust Jesus. This is the heart of the sign we see here. See, belief is everything we don't want it to be as a people who want to control our lives and order our lives around our expectations. See, following Jesus is not about getting what we want. Following Jesus is not about having what we expected would happen. Following Jesus is not about achieving what we once dreamed. Following Jesus is about letting go of the reins and trusting Jesus with our lives. It's a profound difference as we grow in maturity, as we follow Jesus, to realize that faith has nothing to do with the outcome of our life and has everything to do with trusting in Jesus who leads our life. It's letting go of control, surrendering him our lives, our future, our hope, our children, our dreams, our passions, our our livelihood, trusting him with our lives. Following Jesus is about abiding and connecting to him. Faith is likened to, I've used this reference before, I'll use it again because I think it's a pretty good one. Faith is referenced to what some would call the sixth sense. So in 1999, uh, M. Night Shyamalan uh, uh, put together a movie uh, called The Sixth Sense. And then The Sixth Sense was about a boy who could see dead people. It's pretty gnarly, kind of a horror film, probably shouldn't watch it. Kids definitely not so much. It'll keep you up at night, um, and that's not my point. But the point is this. There's this idea of this sixth sense. We have five senses. We're well aware of our five senses. We, uh, we see through them. We smell. We t- touch. We taste. We hear. Five senses are everything that we can experience right in front of us, right before us. And in the kingdom of Jesus, we have what's called, I would say, the sixth sense. It's not seeing dead people but it's birthed in us when we're born again. John 3, with Nicodemus, we hear about being born again, our hearts being made new. And when our hearts are made new, there's a seed of faith that we're given. And the seed of faith is developed, and that is our sixth sense. The sense has the power to take us beyond the sun, beyond what we can see, and to invite us into this true myth, and to keep us grounded in the reality of Jesus. See, faith or the sixth sense is this thing that grounds us in this ultimate reality that's beyond our own circumstances and reminds us of who we are and who God is. See, faith isn't just carrying you through the times of ease in life. Faith is the means that guides you through the valley of the shadow of death. When you can't see your left hand from your right and you don't understand what's in front of you, but you trust that God is guiding and leading and directing your life, guiding you through the highs and the lows. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, Praying the Psalms, he writes that we all find ourselves in one of three places. The, The first would be orientation. The first place that we would find ourselves through the Psalms would be orientation, in which everything makes sense in our lives. The day in and day out realities of our life that we're accustomed to. It is comfortable, it's reliable, it's predictable. 
simple trust in God. It's the, uh, the normality of aspects of our life. It's, it's trusting that God is good and you can see his goodness in the realities of your life. It's a recognition of our need for God and his provision, this place called orientation. And then there's a second place, which would be disorientation. Disorientation is when we feel we have sunk into a pit. It's when our life and our faith is challenged. Where things were once simple, they've become more complicated and confusing. And we don't have answers like we once maybe had. It's here where the deep work of the Spirit begins to take place in our lives. Where we experience loss or death. Death in a relationship. A change in circumstances. Health or financial disappointments. Where life becomes unsettling or scary or unpredictable. Disorientation often brings emotional pain and and suffering. And it's here where deep growth occurs. It's here where maturity can begin. It's here where our faith is tested. Where expectations begin to be shed like a snake shedding its skin. It's where illusion of control is revealed and we have the opportunity to let go of it because it never was real control to begin with. This disorientation place is something we don't dream of for people, but it's the very thing that changes who we are and makes us and forms us and transforms us to the core. It's in that place where God is good, but he doesn't feel good because of the things that are happening in our lives. It's here that we find surrender. It's here where we let go of ideals. It's here where we let go of expectations. It's here where we let go of control. And we cling to the tender mercies of our Savior. So we have orientation, we have disorientation, and then we have this third place which is called reorientation, in which we realize that God has lifted us out of the pit and we are in a new place filled with gratitude and awareness about God's work in our lives through it all. It's where we accept our lot, even when it's painful, where we surrender our expectations, we surrender control, and it's where we trust that God is with us and working in us in the easy times and the hard times. See, the second sign is about faith. It's about faith in Jesus in all situations. This plays out in two aspects of our life. The first aspect would be what's called active spirituality. That as we lean into faith, we lean into what would be called the disciplines, what would be called practices, where we lean into the study of Scripture, where we lean into prayer, where we lean into journaling, where we lean into silence and solitude, where we lean into fasting, where we lean into elements of our life that help stir our faith and keep us grounded in the true myth that we are in, the story that we are a part of. There's this active spirituality that we lean into. That's one aspect of faith. The other would be passive spirituality. But I don't know, I, don't ex- I didn't expect my life to look this way. I didn't expect that I would be here. I didn't expect myself to have this limitation or this hurdle. But I trust you. Faith is profound when we enter into this place of acceptance to say, God, I don't, tr- I don't know your ways. I don't understand how you lead, but I trust you with my life. My friends, there's no greater place of peace that you can experience in life when you let go of the illusion of control 
and you trust Jesus with your life. And as you, as you go through this life, a long obedience in the same direction forward, as you go through this life and you begin to let go more and more, you will experience more and more peace. Not because of your circumstances, but because you can trust and let go and allow God to be the one who's designed to be the leader of your life. Something profound that we find in this sign here. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew 18 when he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, faith is so essential in the kingdom of Jesus. The second sign, that brief story that we can fly over, is a story that reminds us of the beauty and the profound nature of faith. The second sign reminds us of that. The story continues in John chapter 5. We pick up in verse 1. It reads this, like this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roof colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? I'm reading beyond what I was supposed to be reading. So we'll pause there for a second. We'll get back to that in a second. So we we read, sometimes you get, the story's just so good, you forget where you're supposed to stop. So we read at the very beginning, there's a feast. And so what John's doing there is just a little time stamp. It's reminding us that the story's moving on. It could have been a year later from what we just read. So time is moving forward. Things are fast forwarding. And the gospel of John, another feast, has taken place. And then we hear about this pool, this pool that was believed to have healing powers. There was superstition built into this idea of this pool, uh, Solomon's pool that he built as a part of this and they, wanted, they waited for water to move. So the idea was, the tale was that an angel would come and would stir the water. And then when the water was stirred, if you were sick and you entered into the water, you would be healed. It was a superstition. So this man who couldn't walk could never find himself at the right time in the water and could never find the healing of the superstition that occurred. So whether they were superstitious, or like Michael Scott would say, a little stitious, nonetheless, in, the, in reality, the pools that were there were connected to a larger reservoir called the Solomon's Pool, which were fed by intermittent springs, which caused the disturbance that would take place. And so this disabled man sat by the pool. We don't know how often, we don't know if it was daily, but he was there on the regular for 38 years this man was disabled. Well, that takes us back to 1985. For some of you, that was your prime. That was prime time, 1985, for some of you. For some of us, we weren't born. That was the year of my birth. Um, and so 38 years is some time that has passed for this man. And within this story, a sermon could be preached about how God doesn't work as we work. A sermon could be preached about how painful life can be. A sermon could be preached about how God uses or shows up at what seems like the oddest times. And nonetheless, Jesus, he approaches this man, and we pick it up in verse 6. It says this, 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. So the story continues and we, we hear that Jesus asked, do you, want to be, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Oftentimes, the, the first step in wholeness and growth is a willingness to do so. You can't go to counseling. You can't go to marriage therapy. You can't go to these places if you're not willing to be teachable, willing to grow, and willing to let go and receive for somebody else. And so we find here that he was willing. He had desire. And he says, I can't. No one is letting me into the water. I'm unable to get into the water. They're just helpless state. And then Jesus responds with these, again, few words. And in John 4 and in John 5, we read these few words in, in this text. It says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus uses these powerful few words and causes this man to be healed through speaking these words. See, Jesus will look back on this moment in a picture of a future day when Jesus raises the dead and the culmination of the true myth. He says it in John 5, 28 and 29. He says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So he's pointing to these two moments where he speaks and things happen. And he says, a day is coming. Don't marvel. A day is coming. I'm going to speak and every dead person who put their faith in me will be risen. Those to the resurrection of life and those to the resurrection of death. In and of itself, we end this story with this healing of this man. It's this beautiful, brief story. This man who was unable to walk for 38 years. But in encountering Jesus, he could now walk. And the dilemma was that this was taking place on the Sabbath. And so for a Jew, a devout Jew in this day who uh, ad adhered to the Torah and the extension of the religious rules and laws, when they saw this man walk, they became angry, which is quite ironic. We pick up in the second half of John 5, 9. It says, he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man, who had been healed? It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So this man is, I mean, can you imagine? This man has not walked for 38 years. For the first time, he has picked up his darn mat that he's been sitting on for potentially 38 years. And he's walking for the first time with such joy and excitement. And talk about a wet blanket that's just thrown on this dude. As he's holding his mat, feeling the, the bones begin to pop as he's like stepping and moving. I mean, you lay in bed for eight hours and you're like achy and your bones are like creaky, right? So for 38 years, he's probably got some bone pops that are like happening as he's standing up for the first time. And they say, you're not allowed to walk on the Sabbath. See, the Old Testament forbid work on the Sabbath. 
But what is work? The Old Testament would reference one's customary employment for work, but the Mishnah added a prohibition of 39 classes of work. Some would include taking something on the Sabbath or carrying something on the Sabbath. And so for these ones, they saw this individual taking his mat and carrying it. And by seeing that, that they revolt against this man, again, just healed, picking up his mat. And they say, who, who healed you? And the man didn't know. He didn't know the man who had just healed him. And so he says, I don't know. And the story continues in verse 13. We'll pick up. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. So Jesus finds this man, and the words that Jesus give are brief. He says, sin no more. And we don't know the details here of the moral dynamics of this man. There are some instances of suffering that happen because of choices, and there are other instances of suffering that happen void of our choices. In John, James chapter 5, 13 through 16, we read this. It says, if, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And we do this. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, in reality, all of sickness is a result of sin, either general or specific. Not necessarily of some specific individual sin, but all sin and all sickness is the effect of the broader sin umbrella that we are all under. So we can't conclude too much from this. In John 9, another story of another sick person who also questions why he became sick. We'll get into that more in John chapter 9. But the story changes and, and Jesus gains a bullseye on his back in the following text in 16 through 18. It reads this. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the leaders come to... That's, that's good news, I think, that they're screaming downstairs. <clears throat> we all hear it, just got to call it. The leaders come to find Jesus and they persecute him because he did this on the Sabbath and because he called himself to be equal with God. There is texts like this and others that we're going to read in John, including John 1, where we believe that Jesus isn't less than the Father. Some offshoots of Christianity that have become cults have caused some and many to believe that Jesus is less than God, and he's not. He made himself out to be what? Equal with God. First of many controversies that we see, and many of which that take place on the Sabbath. 
So Jesus valued the heart of the Sabbath, not the religious performance of the Sabbath. And so the following verses we can't get into for the sake of time is 28 verses. This discourse follows. Um, but the premise is this, that Jesus communicates that he has a beautiful, connected relationship with his Father. The Son and the Father. That the Son only does what the Father is doing. That the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. That the Father raises the dead and gives life. We see that the Father doesn't judge. It's an interesting concept. Have you ever thought that the throne on Judgment Day will not be the Father? It'll be the Son. That's what Jesus is telling us. That the Father judges no one, only the Son. He does the judging. That all will honor the Son as the Father. That whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And it all culminates in verse 39 and 40 where it says this. Jesus begins to speak to them and challenge them. And he says, you search the scriptures, speaking to the Jews, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's reminding them that the true myth is found in himself as the one who has come. See, in these two sections, we get two main points, simple points, that faith matters in the kingdom of Jesus, and that Jesus is the object and the subject of our faith. See, faith is not built upon our own idea of Jesus. It's built upon Jesus himself. And John is yearning for his readers. He's yearning for you. He's yearning for me to be stirred with faith, to believe in the kingdom of God, and to believe that we're a part of something so much bigger than we realize. So as we close, my question for you is, what does it look like to live by faith? In a day and a time where you can very easily have all you need. And if you don't have all you need, you can work a side job to make it all work out. In a day and an age where it's very easy for us to live within our five senses, what does it look like for you in the season of life you're in, for me in the season of life I'm in, to live by tr faith, to trust when life is easier, to trust when life is confusing, Maybe it is or maybe it's not 38 years of waiting for something. Maybe it is or maybe it's not a sick kid that you're dealing with. Maybe it's something completely different or maybe it's all too familiar for you. The invitation for all of us is to trust again. The invitation for all of us is to believe and to find life in his name, not just in some kind of intellectual ascent, but faith that shapes us to the core, faith that causes us to surrender, faith that lets go of the reins of illusion of control, faith that causes us to cling to Jesus. And we're going through this Gospel of John, not to just waste space on Sunday morning. And we want to invite our community to believe upon the person of Jesus, to trust in him, to cling to him, that he can be trusted. You might not understand what the future is, and I would just say to you, welcome to the club, because none of us do, but we can trust. 
in the life and the person of Jesus. We can trust in the true myth and the story that we are a part of, the, the grand story that we are invited into, the story that is not finished, that, is, that has been at work, that is at work, that will be at work, all with the author of Jesus writing it. Friends, we're invited into something so much more than just a boring life where we just do the nine to five and go home and repeat. We're invited into seeing God at work in our work, to see God at work in our parenting, to see God at work in our finances, to see God at work in the troubling places in our life, to see God at work in all of it and to allow faith in Jesus to shape and form us. Friends, we're invited to see through these stories a simple reminder that faith in the kingdom is a beautiful invitation for all of us, not to allow it to be a genie for us to get what we want that's the farthest from the truth, but to allow it to shape us as we cling to Jesus as our Lord and our King. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are prone to wander. We confess that our love is weak. We confess that this world is alluring. We confess that the temptation is strong, the sirens of this world that call us and beckon us, lure us to settle for the mud pies of this world when you've invited us to a feast. And I pray just that you would help us to reset this morning. You'd help us to reset and making you central. Help us to be men and women who live by faith. In times of orientation, times of disorientation, times of reorientation, and times where we're walking through green valleys or green meadows or deep, dark valleys. Lord, help us to trust you. For some of my friends this morning, I pray that you just stir fresh faith upon our hearts to believe again, to find life in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.